my dear brothers and sisters and friends, sixteen years ago I was called to be a general authority of this Church, and ten years ago this conference I was sustained as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. These years have been challenging and in many ways difficult, but they have also been fulfilling. My wife and I have been trying humbly to serve the Lord as best we know how. We have traveled over much of the earth in my ministry. This has afforded us opportunity to bear witness of the Savior in many countries. Having worn as a spiritual cloak the knowledge that Jesus is Christ during those years, I feel led today to give my personal witness concerning Jesus of Nazareth and his mission. I wish to testify of the mediation, the atonement, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I speak of these transcendent events in the light of my spiritual knowledge that Jesus is the Redeemer and the Son of God. I also testify of his divinity and of those events in the office, the priesthood, the calling, and the authority of the Holy Apostleship with which I and my brethren are charged. Through the Atonement and those singular events surrounding it, all of the terrible sins of all mankind were individually and collectively taken upon the Lord's shoulders. The marvelous result of this great suffering was that he was able to redeem from physical death the believers and the obedient as well as the unbelieving and the disobedient. Every person ever born or yet to be born is the beneficiary of both the mediation and the atonement of the Savior. The act of the atonement is, in its simplest terms, a reconciliation of man with his God. The word atonement means to be at one. It is literally at one month. Because of their transgression, Adam and Eve, having chosen to leave their state of innocence, were banished from the presence of God. This is referred to in Christendom as the fall or Adam's transgression. It is a spiritual death because Adam and Eve were separated from the presence of God and given agency to act for themselves and not be acted upon. They were also given the great power of procreation so that they could keep the commandment to multiply and replenish the earth and have joy in their posterity. All of their posterity were likewise banished from the presence of God. However, the posterity of Adam and Eve were innocent of the original sin because they had no part in it. It was therefore unfair for all of humanity to suffer eternally for the transgressions of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It became necessary to settle this injustice, hence the need for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus in his role as the Savior and Redeemer. Because of the transcendent act of the Atonement, it is possible for every soul to obtain forgiveness of his sins to have them washed away and be forgotten. This forgiveness comes about, however, on condition of repentance and personal righteousness. There is a distinction between immortality or eternal existence and eternal life, which is to have a place in the presence of God. 
Through the grace of Jesus Christ, immortality comes to all men, just or unjust, righteous or wicked. However, eternal life is the greatest of all gifts of God. We obtain this great gift according to the Lord if you keep my commandments and endure to the end. If we so endure, the promise is you shall have eternal life. President Joseph Fielding Smith explains, This distinction between eternal life as received by the faithful and immortality, obtained by both the faithful and the unfaithful, is shown in the words of the Lord to Moses. For behold, this is my work and glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. The conjunction clearly separates the two thoughts. It explains that the Lord is giving to the vast majority of men, those who will not be obedient, the blessings of immortality, and to those who will serve Him, the blessing of eternal life. It has been almost 2,000 years since the wondrous occasion when death was conquered. We still do not know how the Savior was able to take upon Himself and bear our transgressions, our foolishness, our grief, our sorrows, and our burdens. It was indefinable and unfathomable. It was almost unbearable. The indescribable agony was so great in Gethsemane that His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. The haunting cry on the cross in a loud voice in his native Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, gives but a mere glimpse of his suffering and humiliation. One cannot help wondering how many of those drops of precious blood each of us may be responsible for. Even though as a man or a woman we are born, live a brief moment and then die, through the Atonement of Jesus Christ we will all live after death. Through the divinity which is within us as a gift of the great Creator, we can come to complete fruition as heirs of God with eternal powers, dominions, and progression without end. Paul said, this gift is a free gift. Through the mediation and atonement, we will be resurrected ourselves without going through any part of the atoning agony that the Son of God went through. Jacob's teachings in the Book of Mormon further explain, If the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. The testimony of those faithful followers who saw, heard, and touched the resurrected Lord stand uncontroverted to this day. After the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices to anoint his body. But the devoted women were concerned as to who would roll away the great stone in front of the sepulchre. When they arrived, they found that the stone had been rolled away. A great earthquake had intervened, and an angel had rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it, causing the keepers to shake with fear and become as dead men. 
The angel instructed the women to tell the disciples quickly of the Lord's resurrection, assuring them that he goeth before you into Galilee, there ye shall find him. As they went to tell the disciples, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. During the forty days that the Savior spent with the apostles and others, they heard and saw many unspeakable things. This special ministry changed the apostles from an uncertain, confused, divided, and weak group into powerful witnesses of the Lord. Mark records that the Savior upbraided the eleven because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Perhaps the apostles should not be unduly criticized for not having believed that Jesus, having been crucified and buried in the tomb, had come back to earth as a glorified being. In all human experience, this had never happened before. It was completely unprecedented. This was a different experience than the raising of Jairus' daughter, the young man of Nain, or Lazarus. They all died again. Jesus, however, became a resurrected being. He would never die again. So it was that to the apostles the story of Mary Magdalene and the other women who witnessed the resurrection seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Said President McKay of this experience, The world would never have been stirred by men with such wavering, doubting, despairing minds as the apostles possessed on the day of crucifixion. What was it that suddenly changed these disciples to confident, fearless, heroic preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was a revelation that Christ had risen from the grave. His promises had been kept, his messianic mission fulfilled. In the words of an eminent writer, the final and absolute seal of genuineness has been put upon all his claims and the indelible stamp of divine authority upon all his teachings. The gloom of death had been banished by the glorious light in the presence of their risen, glorified Lord and Savior." On the evidence of these unprejudiced, unexpected, incredulous witnesses, faith in the resurrection has its impregnable foundation. Like the apostles of old, this knowledge and belief should transform all of us into be confident, settled, unafraid, and at peace in our lives as followers of the divine Christ. It should help us carry all burdens and bear any sorrows and also fully savor all joys and happiness that can be found in this life. The disciples who walked with the Savior on the road to Emmaus said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked? he talked with us by the way and while he opened unto us the scriptures? No wonder they entreated him, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and he sat with them at meat. They sought to savor those precious moments and feelings. The vacating of the tomb transcended all other events in history of the world, for it attested 
that Jesus had not died, but that death itself had been overcome. As I have traveled over much of the earth, I have been saddened over and over again by the legions of the crippled, the maimed, the deformed, suffering and diminished people almost everywhere. What parent of a special child has not agonized over the future and well-being of that child? Through the individual resurrection of each of us, there is great hope for all. Alma, in the Book of Mormon, promises that the temporal death, following the temporal death, the spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, and we shall be brought to stand before God and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. The Prophet Joseph Smith stated, I can taste the principle of eternal life, and so can you. And I know that when I tell you these words of eternal life, you can taste them, and I know that you believe them. So it is that the humblest and newest believer, the child, the youth, or adult, can come to have a personal conviction of the truth of eternal life. John the Revelator saw a new heaven and a new earth and heard a great voice out of heaven. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. It is not necessary for anyone to depend continually upon the testimony of another regarding the mediation, atonement, and resurrection of Christ as our Redeemer and Savior. Each can savor the sweetness of the truths of the gospel by obedience to the principles, ordinances, and covenants. One can still go to the Garden of Gethsemane, but the Lord Jesus cannot be found there, nor is he in the Garden tomb. He is not on the road to Emmaus, nor in Galilee, nor at Nazareth or Bethlehem. He must be found in one's heart. But he left us the great comforter forever and the everlasting power of the priesthood. Of this power Jacob the son of Lehi testified, We can truly command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. I testify that through righteousness this priesthood power and these supernal gifts of the atonement and the mediation can operate in our lives. Ultimately, each of us must come to know these great spiritual truths by following the counsel of Jesus. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In conclusion, I wish to make a humble declaration an affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, our Redeemer and the Savior of the world. I do this with all of the solemnity of my soul. This testimony has come to me not alone from a lifetime of study or from reason or logic, but more by personal revelation under the spirit of prophecy. I pray that our Savior will heal our souls dry our tears, and create in each of us a pure heart. I also pray that we may find shelter in the shadows of his outstretched arms, and that he will be merciful and forgiving concerning our weaknesses, 
that he will be a father to the fatherless and deliver to the needy according to their needs and incline his ear to our cries. I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, I want to speak to you today about what I consider to be one of the greatest challenges of our times, the need to pursue a more excellent way. It was the Apostle Paul who said, But covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Why should we all seek to pursue a more excellent way, and what does it mean? Finding a more excellent way means being totally converted to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing all that we can to fulfill those covenants we make in becoming his disciples. The great prophet Alma, speaking of his own life and his conversion, said, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters, and thus they become new creatures. And unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Being converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ means to walk in newness of life. It means learning to yield to the Spirit and responding to the things that the Lord expects us to respond to. It means caring for and serving others with deep, considerate feelings rather than pursuing the natural desires of our own lives. In our day and time, there has been a great tendency to shrug off the things of the Spirit as we become more and more involved in worldly things. We seem to be living in a world where people give little thought to others as they're busily caring for their own needs. As followers of Christ, we must live outside ourselves and lose ourselves in service to others. I believe we ought to remember what King Benjamin said so long ago. He said, For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. It was the great apostle Paul who said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. To find that more excellent way, brothers and sisters, we must cast aside one's old self and one's old habits and ways of thinking. We must first recognize how we should change, and then we must make those changes. 
thus putting on the new and beginning to live as we have never lived before, walking in newness of life. The Apostle Paul also said, speaking of our relationship to the Lord, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Throughout the world, I personally have witnessed man's great tendency to think of himself without consideration of others. I believe with all my heart we cannot come unto Christ unless we put on a newness of life in caring for those we love, in sharing the gospel, in keeping the commandments, and in honoring the covenants we have made. These are the things we must do now as we have never done them before. Our great prophet, President Ezra Taft Benson, has called upon each of us to read the Book of Mormon. He has not invited us to read this sacred record just to read the words. Through prayerful study of the Book of Mormon, we can pursue that more excellent way. Our prophet's motive in asking us to read the Holy Scripture is conveyed in one of the words of our beautiful, a beautiful words of our hymn. Abide with me, tis eventide. Thy walk today with me has made my heart within me burn as I commune with thee. Thy earnest words have filled my soul and kept me near thy side. O Savior, stay this night with me. Behold, tis eventide. Now to each of you. I bear you my witness that you who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are involved in the true work. This is the Lord's work. I want each of you to know that I sustain it with all my heart. I sustain those who preside over me, our great and living prophet who is guided by our Father in heaven and his associates who are indeed messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This work is true. And this is the way to come unto Christ and walk in newness of life. My brothers and sisters, it has been a humbling experience for me to speak to you in this great conference. I want you to know that you have my love, my faith, and my prayers. I know that no people on earth have more capacity to be what the Lord wants them to be than those of you who are members of this great church. I also want you to know that my life was changed more than 40 years ago as I read the Book of Mormon. There is nothing on earth that has influenced me more profoundly than my testimony of this sacred record and the work to which it belongs. It has burned within my soul over the years with ever-increasing brightness, and I find great joy and satisfaction in walking in newness of life in my search for the more excellent way. And I find great joy and satisfaction in walking that journey with a beloved companion. And now with a posterity who seems to have caught the same vision. May you have this experience. I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Elder Scott, we welcome you to the quorum. Elder Scott is a man in whom the Spirit is, sustained by his lovely wife, Janine, 
who's not one whit less a spiritual power. And to these four brethren who join the first quorum of the Seventy, your fellowship will be enjoyed and your help very much appreciated. A neighbor once told me that as a missionary in the earlier days, he and his companion were walking along a ridge in the mountains of the south. They saw people gathering in a clearing near a cabin some distance down the hillside. They had come for a funeral. A little boy had drowned, and the parents had sent for the preacher to say words. The preacher, who rode a circuit on horseback, would rarely visit these isolated families, but when there was trouble, they would send for him. The little fellow was to be buried in a grave opened near the cabin. The elders stayed in the background as the minister stood before the grieving family and began his sermon. If the parents had hoped for consolation from this man of the cloth, they would be disappointed. He scolded them severely because the little boy had not been baptized. He told them bluntly that their little son was lost in endless torment, and it was their fault. After the grave was covered and the neighbors had gone, the elders approached the grieving parents. We are servants of the Lord, they told the sobbing mother, and we've come with a message for you. As the grief-stricken parents listened, the elders unfolded the plan of redemption. They quoted from the Book of Mormon, Little children need no repentance, neither baptism. And they bore testimony of the restoration of the gospel. I have sympathy for that itinerant preacher, for he was doing the best he could with the light and knowledge he had. But there is more than he had to give. What comfort the truth brings at times of sorrow. Since death is ever-present with us, a knowledge of how essential it is to the plan of salvation is of immense practical value. Every one of us should know how and why it came to be in the beginning. Mortal death came into the world at the fall. It is easier for me to understand that word fall in the scriptures if I think both in terms of location and condition. The word fall means to descend to a lower place. The fall of man was a move from the presence of God to mortal life on earth. That move down to a lower place came as a consequence of a broken law. Fall may also be described as a change in condition. For instance, one can fall in reputation or from prominence. The word fall well describes what transpired when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. A transformation took place in their bodies. The bodies of flesh and bone became temporal bodies. Temporal means temporary. The scriptures say the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. President Kimball explained, Blood, the life-giving element in our bodies, replaced the finer substance which coursed through their bodies before. They and we became subject to illness, pains, and even to the physical dissolution called death. After the transformation of the fall, 
bodies of flesh and bone and blood, unlike our spirit bodies, could not endure. Somehow the ingredient blood carried with it a limit to life. It was as though a clock were set and a time given. Thereafter, all living things moved inexorably toward mortal death. Temporal, I repeat, means temporary. And so death is the reality of life. When conditions develop because of age or illness or accident, the spirit is separated from the body. Death can be tragic with the loss of one upon whom others depend for happiness, for many die too young. Sometimes it is slow in coming to one who yearns to join the loved ones who have gone before. Some sleep peacefully away and others endure long suffering. And we know that death can be terrible and violent. To threaten or to take life, even our own in suicide, is to offend God. For he, quote, in all things hath forbidden it from the beginning of man. It is my conviction that in the spirit world prior to mortal birth, we waited anxiously for our time to enter mortality. I also believe that we were willing to accept whatever conditions would prevail in life. Perhaps we knew that nature might impose limits on the mind or on the body or on life itself. I believe that we nevertheless anxiously awaited our turn. One of the most solemn and sacred meetings of the Church is the funeral for a departed member. It is a time of caring and support when families gather in a spirit of tender regard for one another. It is a time to soberly contemplate the doctrines of the gospel and the purposes for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Except where burial is prohibited by law, we are counseled to bury our dead. There are important symbolic references to burial in the ordinance of baptism and elsewhere in the doctrines of the Church. Where required by law, alternate methods of disposing of the remains do not nullify the resurrection. On occasion, a body will be lost through accident or military action. A funeral is nevertheless very important, for we take comfort in the promise in the scriptures of a complete restoration of both the body and the spirit. A comforting funeral, spiritual funeral, is of great importance. It helps console the bereaved and establish a transition from mourning to the reality that we now must move forward with life. Whether death is expected or a sudden shock, an inspirational funeral where the doctrines of the resurrection the mediation of Christ and the certainty of life after death are taught, strengthen those who now must move on with life. Many attend funerals who do not come to church regularly. They come in subdued, a subdued spirit and are teachable. How sad when an opportunity for conversion is lost because a funeral is less than it might have been. There's reason to fear that we're drifting from the sacred spirit of reverence which should characterize funerals. 
The brethren have discussed this in council meetings and are concerned. I have read what the revelations teach us concerning mortal death and the instructions given by the brethren concerning funerals. May I review some of that counsel? I hope that bishops will pay attention because the responsibility for arranging and conducting funerals in the Church rests upon the bishopric. Funerals held under the direction of the priesthood are Church meetings. They have been likened to sacrament meetings. I quote from a priesthood bulletin. It is requested that henceforth all funerals conducted under the auspices of the officials of the Church follow the general format of sacrament meetings with respect to speaking, music, and prayers. Music should be used at the beginning of the service prior to the opening prayer and possibly after the invocation also, as in our Sunday meetings. The closing portion of the funeral likewise should follow our customary pattern of having a final musical number immediately before the concluding prayer. Where feasible, a choir could very well be used on the musical program. With respect to speaking, it should be kept in mind that funeral services provide an excellent opportunity for teaching the basic doctrines in a positive manner. Following these suggestions will help to keep our services in line with our established pattern and will avoid practices now so commonly followed elsewhere. Bishops always show tender regard for the family of the deceased, and insofar as their requests accord with established policy, they may be willingly met. On occasion, a family member has suggested, sometimes even insisted, that some innovation be added to a funeral service as a special accommodation to the family. Within reason, of course, a bishop may honor such a request. However, there are limits to what may be done without disturbing the spirituality and causing it to be less than it might be. We should remember, too, that others attending the funeral may suppose that that innovation is an accepted procedure and introduce it at other funerals. Then, unless we are careful, an innovation which was allowed as an accommodation to one family in one funeral may be, come to be regarded as expected at every funeral. Occasionally a mortician, out of a desire to be of help and not understanding the doctrines and procedures of the Church, will alter funeral services. Bishops should remember that when funerals are held under priesthood auspices, the service should conform to the instructions given by the Church. We should regard the bishop rather than the family or the mortician as the presiding authority in these matters. In recent years, there has been the tendency to stray from the accepted patterns of funerals. Sometimes the casket is kept open during the funeral and members are expected to file by at the close of the funeral. And instead of a simple family prayer, talks. Even musical numbers have been added at the closing of the casket or at the cemetery before the grave is dedicated. I do not refer to graveside services, which may on occasion take the place of a formal funeral. I refer to those alterations of the approved simple agenda for funerals. 
When innovations are suggested by family members, morticians, or others, which are quite out of harmony with that simple agenda, the bishop should quietly persuade them to follow the established pattern. It is not a rigid pattern and allows sufficient flexibility to have each funeral appropriately personal for the deceased. There now seems to be the expectation that members of the immediate family must speak at funerals. While that may not be out of order, it should not be regarded as required. Family members ordinarily give the family prayer and dedicate the grave. If family members do speak, and I repeat it is not a requirement, they are under the same obligation to speak with reverence and to teach principles of the gospel. Sometimes family members tell things that would be appropriate at a family reunion or some other family gathering, but not on an occasion that should be sacred and solemn. While humor is not out of order in a funeral, it should be wisely introduced. It should be ever kept in mind that the funeral should be characterized by spirituality and reverence. One statement from the instruction refers to events other than the funeral service itself. I quote, The bishop should urge members to maintain a spirit of reverence, dignity, and solemnity at gatherings connected with the funerals. That should be kept in mind if a viewing is to be held. Viewings are not mandatory. Funerals generally bring relatives and friends from distant places. There's the tendency to greet one another joyfully and, unfortunately, at times noisily. Some visit at length, showing little regard for others who are waiting to pay their respects. Both the irreverence and the delay are discourtesies from which the spirituality of the occasion suffers. Renewing of friendships should appropriately be made outside the room where the viewing is taking place. Local leaders need to gently caution us on this matter. Surely, we do not want to be known as an irreverent people. There is the need to reestablish the spirit of reverence at funerals, whether in a chapel, a mortuary, or at other locations. We should always have a tender regard for the feeling of the bereaved. We are close, very close, to the spirit world at the time of death. Their tender feelings, spiritual communications, really, which may easily be lost if there is not a spirit of reverence. At times of sorrow and parting, one may experience that peace which passeth understanding, which the scriptures promise. That is a very private experience. Many have come to marvel in their hearts that such a feeling of peace even exaltation can come at the time of such grief and uncertainty. Testimonies are strengthened by such inspiration, and we come to know, personally know, what is meant when the Lord said, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come unto you. The Comforter works, as far as I have experience, in moments of reverence and quiet and solemnity. How sad if our own conduct is irreverent at a time when others are seeking so desperately for spiritual strength.
The revelations tell us that thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep, weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. A funeral at times may be a happy, sad occasion when death comes as a welcome release. Nevertheless, they are sacred occasions and should be characterized by solemnity and reverence. Alma's son thought that death was unfair. In his remarkable sermon on repentance, Alma taught his son about death, saying, Now behold, it was not expedient that man should be reclaimed from this temporal death, for that would destroy the great plan of happiness. Alma did not say that setting mortal death aside would merely delay or disturb the plan of happiness. He said it would destroy it. The words death and happiness are not close companions in mortality, but in the eternal sense they are essential to one another. Death is a mechanism of rescue. Our first parents left Eden lest they partake of the tree of life and live forever in their sins. The mortal death they brought upon themselves and upon us is our journey home. Three elements combine in a funeral as in no other meeting—the doctrines of the gospel, the spirit of inspiration, and families gathered in tender regard for one another. May we reintroduce the attitude of reverence each time we gather to memorialize one who has moved through the veil to that place where one day each of us will go. No consolation in parting compares with that peace which passeth understanding. That is fostered by reverence. Reverence, please, brothers and sisters, reverence, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I would like to share some thoughts about measurements. A measurement is a standard by which we determine the capacity or dimension of a person or object. A measurement gives us a basis for comparison. If I say she is a three-point student, you have a pretty good idea of this person's scholastic ability. A measurement may also be an estimate of what is expected. Human measurement, of course, is subject to human fallibility. My generation, for example, was taught that a person's IQ was supposedly a fixed measurement of a person's capacity to learn. Such a notion is now generally discredited by the teaching profession. Interestingly, the prophet Joseph Smith taught in the 19th century, We consider that God created man with a mind capable of instruction and a faculty which may be enlarged in proportion to the heed and diligence given to the light communicated from heaven to the intellect. Close quote. He was obviously ahead of his time. We also tend to evaluate others on the basis of physical outward appearance, whether or not the person is good-looking, their social status, their family pedigree, their degrees, or their economic situations. 
The Lord, however, has a different standard by which he measures a person. When it came time to choose a king to replace King Saul, the Lord gave this criteria to his prophet Samuel. Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. When the Lord measures an individual, he does not take a tape measure around his head to determine his mental capacity, nor his chest to determine his manliness, but he measures the heart as an indicator of his capacity and potential to bless others. Why the heart? Because the heart is a synonym for one's entire makeup. We often use phrases about the heart to describe the total person. Thus, we describe people as being big-hearted or good-hearted or having a heart of gold. Or we speak of people with faint hearts, wise hearts, pure hearts, willing hearts, deceitful hearts, conniving hearts, courageous hearts, cold hearts, hearts of stone, or selfish hearts. The measure of our hearts is the measure of our total performance. As used by the Lord, the heart of a person describes his effort to better self or others or the condition he confronts. A question I suggest to you is this. How do you measure up? Ultimately, you and I will be judged not only for our actions, but the desires of our heart. This truth was revealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith at a time when he was shown in vision the celestial kingdom. The revelation is recorded in section 137 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph marveled when he saw his deceased brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom, for he had died before the gospel was restored. Joseph then received this great truth. All who have died without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. For I, the Lord, will judge men according to their works and according to the desire of their hearts. If our works and the desires of our heart are the ultimate criteria of our character, how do we measure up? What kind of a heart should we seek? For what kind of a heart should we pray? How should we measure the worth of other people? Today, may I suggest four questions that deal with the heart that may help you determine how you are measuring up. First, how honest in heart am I? We pray that our missionaries will find the honest in heart. What does it mean to be honest in heart? It describes an individual who is open to truth, who will evaluate performance or people without prejudice. Honest-hearted persons are individuals without pretense, without hypocrisy. 
They are reliable in word and action. They have no hidden agendas to deceive others or misrepresent the facts. In contrast, those with conniving hearts will deceive and misrepresent. An honest heart will lead to a change of heart. Spiritually speaking, a change of heart is not only desirable but essential for eternal life. King Benjamin described the conversion experience which all of us must have as a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. The Book of Mormon is a study of interesting contrast between those who hardened their hearts and those whose hearts were softened by the Spirit of the Lord. How does one have his or her heart softened under the influence of the Holy Ghost? Nephi's testimony provides an answer. Having great desire to know the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did soften my heart, that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father. After obtaining a testimony of the gospel and the Lord's Church, we should then strive to become pure in heart. This will result in happiness and eventually the promise of a society without contention. It is a Savior's way to peace. Second question, do I have a willing heart? Let us look again to the scriptures for guidance. Behold, the Lord requireth a heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. A willing heart describes one who desires to please the Lord and to serve his cause first. He serves the Lord on the Lord's terms, not his own. There are no restrictions to where or how we will serve. As one who has tendered calls to serve to many, I am always pleased to see members willing to give their time, energy, and effort to the upbuilding of the Church. They do so for one primary reason—to serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, might, and strength. I have a friend who serves as a priest quorum advisor. The boys and the advisor planned a kayak activity at Flaming Gorge, Utah. After some initial planning, one of the quorum members quietly approached the advisor and said, We better not plan a kayak trip. Mike won't be able to go because he can't paddle. Mike was partially paralyzed on his right side. When he learned their quorum was not going on this activity because of him, he told the other boys, I want to go. I can paddle. The quorum advisor placed his hand on Mike's shoulder and said, OK, Mike, you're my paddle partner. So from January to August, the boys built their kayaks. They departed to the reservoir in the first week in August. Rhythm, togetherness, and teamwork are essential to keep a kayak in a straight line. Mike and his partner had more trouble than the others getting their rhythm and strokes coordinated. 
Mike had almost no stroke of consequence on his right side. His advisor had to compensate by paddling easy on the left and hard on the right. After several hours of learning to work together, Mike said to his advisor, You wouldn't have a Band-Aid, would you? The advisor pulled his wallet out and gave Mike a Band-Aid. Mike placed it over a big water blister that had just popped in the crook of his hand between his thumb and first finger. The hand and the arm that was little used now had to help hold the paddle. Several hours later, Mike turned again to his advisor, who was in the rear cockpit, and said, Do you have any more bandages? The advisor pulled out several and handed them to Mike. By now, the crook between Mike's right thumb and his first finger was becoming raw. Mike applied the band-aids and resumed paddling. The next day, the crew set out again. The advisor encouraged Mike to rest from paddling and let his hand have a respite. The words fell on deaf ears. Instantly, Mike was paddling as he had the day before. This day found a usual midday and afternoon wind blowing directly at the flotilla of kayak paddlers. It required stronger strokes and took much energy and time. Wincing from the hurt, Mike continued to paddle. Each suggestion that he rest almost intensified his will to carry his load. Throughout the week, Mike persisted in holding his own. Though his hand was as raw as hamburger and awful to look at, he would not give up. During the week's trip, the conversation with his senior companion, the advisor, often was centered around his desire to go on a mission. Repeatedly, Mike asked, I hope they'll let me go on a mission. Do you think my problem will prevent me from going? Mike walks with a noticeable limp on his right leg. He has a firm handshake with his left hand, but his right hand doesn't open up all the way. How many who have no visible blemish have a heart like Mike's? How many young men with not a cell out of place fail to soften their hearts and desire to serve the Lord? How many who have so much forfeit their blessings for selfish desires or inability to set lofty priorities? My advisor friend said, Mike taught 11 others that though one may appear to be a little less physically capable, the heart makes the difference in those who choose to overcome many odds and set a standard for others to follow. Mike fulfilled an honorable mission to California and is now working in his hometown. What does the Lord require for service? a willing heart, and intense desire. Third question, do I have an understanding, loving heart? An understanding, loving heart is the pinnacle of all human emotions. As the Apostle Paul said, Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. 
We become closest to becoming Christ-like when we are charitable and understanding to others. One may have many talents and knowledge, but never acquires wisdom because he does not learn to be compassionate with his fellow man. We will never approach godliness until we learn to love and lift. Indifference to others and their plight denies to oneself life's sweetest moment of joy and service. Last question, this taken directly from the Book of Mormon. If you have experienced a change of heart and if you have felt to sing the songs of redeeming love, can you feel so now? Having a change of heart at one time in our lives is insufficient to give us an understanding heart today. Helping and understanding a person years ago does not fill us with the love of God today. Christ-like love must be continuous and contemporary. One night a young idealist had a dream. He dreamed there was a new store in a nearby shopping mall. He went in and saw an angel behind the counter. Nervously he asked what the shop sold. Everything your heart desires, replied the angel. Then I want peace on earth, exclaimed the idealist. I want an end to famine, sorrow, and disease. Just a moment, replied the angel. You haven't understand, understood. We don't sell fruit here. We only sell seeds. I pray that God will give all of us the courage and desire for a pure heart, a willing heart, and an understanding and loving heart. May we take the seeds offered to all of us, plant them, and nourish them, that we may help harvest the matured fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we can do this when the final judgment is made and our hearts are measured by the Lord, our measurements will not be found deficient. I bear my testimony and witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change hearts and help individuals become pure, gentle, honest, kind, and loving. We are led by a living prophet today. President Ezra Taft Benson has a pure, gentle, honest, kind, and loving heart. This I know. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.